Our scripture now is from Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 9. Hebrews 2, 5 to 9. The Son of Man. The Son of Man, who is Christ Jesus our Lord. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the Son of Man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to show us Christ here and show us what he has come to do for our forgiveness and for our salvation. May he be exalted in our midst. And in his name we pray. Amen. This passage is a continuation of the argument of the apostle to prove that we ought to focus our faith and have a steadfast faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, not to be tempted to defect, not to be tempted to fall away from the faith, but always stand firm in the faith with Christ fixed right in front of us. In the first part, in chapter 1, he has shown that Christ is above the prophets and he is above the angels. He continues his argument that Jesus is superior to angels in this section. He has already said that Jesus is superior to angels because he possesses deity. He is called God, he is called Lord, and all the angels worship him. He does not have the same role or function or even glory that the angels do. He has a superior one than they have. The angels are therefore below him and he is above them, so pay attention to what he says. He has said in chapter 2 verses 1 to 4 that though the law was delivered by angels, and it deserved obedience because of that fact. By 10,000 angels delivering the law of Moses to Moses and to the people of Israel, it deserved their utmost attention and utmost authority was placed on that law because of that means of revelation. However, the angels are lesser than Christ, and the Lord Christ came in an incarnation in his fleshly body. He was born of a woman, born under the law, Galatians 4.4, that he might redeem those who are under the law. He also came in person. And because he came in person, the one who comes in person, God himself in human flesh, deserves our attention. He deserves to have every aspect of our life in obedience to him. Because he has spoken, therefore we ought to listen to him. He came in person. He came in flesh and blood, so listen to him, because he is superior to angels. That's what he has said in verses 1 to 4. Now in verses 5 to 9, he continues his argument that he is superior to angels, that Christ is superior to angels because of what he did in order to receive this exalted status and be the, the ruler and the king of the whole universe. Because of what Christ did, when he came in his incarnation, when he came in the flesh, because of what he accomplished and what exalted status God has given him, this is also superior to angels, and not only superior to angels, but a necessary requirement for our salvation. It's a necessary requirement for our salvation. That's the argument he makes here, which is, of course superior to angels, superior to men, all men, superior to any other part of creation because he is uncreated, yet he has come into our creation in order to redeem us as his creation. Let's see how this argument unfolds. Verse 5, 
for he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. What is he speaking about? What is the apostle addressing? He's addressing the fact that in Christ, the new covenant is established. The new covenant is ratified. The new covenant is accomplished. He will get into this argument in chapters 5 to 10, especially chapter 8. He will get into this fact that the new covenant has been solidified and finalized in Christ. He came in order to shed the blood for that new covenant. And that is the beginning of this world to come. He said in verse, chapter 1, verse 2, In these last days has spoken to us in His Son. The last days began when Jesus first came, and they end when He comes again. The last days are the period between His first and second coming. So between this period of His first and second coming, He is seated at the right hand of the Father, He reigns and rules until He comes again, and then in a final and ultimate sense, everything will in fact be subjected to Him without any exception, without any evil, without any pain and death in the world, without any of those things happening. But between His first and second coming, He is also at the right hand of the Father, He's reigning and ruling. This is the world to come that the Apostle is addressing. He's addressing the period between Christ's first coming and throughout all eternity. These are the days of Christ, or the days of Messiah. These are the, this is the age that was prophesied in the Old Testament. That is, the old world, or the old covenant period, that, that section of the scriptures throughout the Old Testament, that was one world, or that was one age, that was one period, that was one covenant. Now we have a new covenant, we have the world to come, and that's what he's addressing here. So, when we consider it like that, did God subject this whole phase to angels? Absolutely not. That's why he says, for he, God the Father, did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. All of this period between the first coming of Christ and all eternity has not been subjected to angels not one single angel, not even to an archangel like Michael the archangel. To none of them has this world been subjected in the full, supreme, and ultimate sense. It has not been subjected to any of them, but only to Christ, only to the Messiah, only to the Anointed One, the Redeemer, our Redeemer, our Mediator. Only to Him has this world been subjected. So, that itself should be enough for us to say, it doesn't matter what people say, it doesn't matter what angels say, or somebody who claims that an angel spoke to him, it doesn't matter. What matters is what Christ has said, what Christ believes, what Christ has accomplished for our redemption. And how does he prove his point? That God the Father did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. How does he do it? He quotes the Old Testament. He quotes the Old Testament so that none of us might think, none of us might think or, or wonder or have a skeptical attitude and say, well, this is a new idea. It was never announced like that before. God never said that before. No, there is unity in the revelation of God. There is unity in the will of God so that what he announced in ages past comes to fulfillment in the person of His one and only Son. And so therefore, the Apostle knows that. That's why he quotes the Old Testament to prove his argument right now. He quotes the Old Testament to show that there is a unity in the purpose of God, a unity in the plan of God, that all things are working together according to the will of God for our redemption. So he says... In verses 6 to 8, he quotes Psalm 8, verses 4 to 6. He quotes Psalm 8, verses 4 to 6 in our passage, verses 6 to 8. He quotes it with this introduction. But one has testified somewhere, saying, The New American Standard has rendered the original word, the Greek word, as somewhere. I think that that is 
an unfortunate rendering. I think it's unfortunate and it should be rendered in a certain place. Not somewhere as though he doesn't know, but it should be rendered in a certain place. He does this here, the apostle does this here in verse 6, testified somewhere, and also in chapter 4, verse 4, Hebrews 4, verse 4, for he has thus said somewhere, or rather, in a certain place, concerning the seventh day. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. God rested on the seventh day from all his works, which is a quote from Genesis 2, verse 2. Genesis 2, verse 2, which, although in the first century they did not have chapter and verse numbers, it would have been on the second page of the book of Genesis. So it would have been a passage, in other words, a passage that he knew, a passage where he knew where it was located. It would not be hard for him to say, in the book of Moses, in this part of the book of Moses, or Moses said, when he described creation. He could have introduced it in any number of ways to specify. But I believe he does not specify in these two places because these two are two examples, or only two examples, of how in this letter he does not usually or at all say, Moses wrote, Jeremiah wrote, David wrote. He doesn't ever say that because, I believe, his desire is to put the attention on the authority of Scripture written by the Holy Spirit. The authority of Scripture written by the Holy Spirit. That's why he suppresses the human name, David or Moses or Jeremiah. He suppresses the name in order to not distract the reader from the attention that the Scripture, the authoritative, Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God deserves in the believer's life. This is why I believe he does so. Let me show you this by means of a couple of examples within this letter. His other citations. For example, Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 3, verses 7 to 11. Hebrews 3, 7 to 11. In that place, he quotes David in Psalm 95. He quotes David in Psalm 95, yet he doesn't say David. He says in chapter 3, verse 7, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes the passage. He says the Holy Spirit says. Why does he say that? Because it's true. The Holy Spirit did move David to write that passage. Cross-reference this with 2 Peter 1. 20 to 24, 2 Peter 1, 20 to 24, that whenever the prophets wrote, it was the Holy Spirit who moved them to write whatever they write. 2 Peter 1, 20, know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, one more example in the book of Hebrews where the human author's name is unmentioned is in chapter 9. In, in chapter 9, Hebrews 9 and verse 8, after describing some of the elements and furniture of the tabernacle that Moses commanded and Moses wrote for the people, Notice what he says in Hebrews 9, verse 8. He says, The Holy Spirit is signifying this. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed, while the outer tabernacle is still standing. Though Moses wrote all about that, he doesn't say anything about Moses writing it. He just says, The Holy Spirit is signifying this. Just a couple of examples of how our letter here, the author does not intend to have us focus on the human author for his argument because he wants us to focus on the authority of what is written. He knows where all these passages are and he could have easily said so. It's not a matter of doubt or uncertainty or that he is quoting the Old Testament willy-nilly and carelessly. 
That's not the way he's doing it. Though there are skeptics of the Bible, both within Christianity and outside of Christianity, skeptics of the Bible who bring this charge against the apostle that he is misquoting and quoting carelessly from the Old Testament. No, absolutely not. That's not what is happening. As I said from chapter uh, 3, excuse me, chapter 4 and verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4, that he quotes Genesis 2, 2. He could have easily said, Moses said. He could have easily said that from the book of Genesis. Now, further, back in chapter 2, verse 6, it says, one has testified. One has testified. Why does he call it a testimony? Why does he call it a testimony? He does something similar to this in chapter 7, verse 17. For he says, in quoting Psalm 110, verse 4, in 717, he says, For it is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Why does he call this scripture a testimony? Well, if we read Psalm 119, we note that throughout that psalm, often the scripture is identified as a testimony or a witness. In fact, sometimes the word of God is called your testimony or your testimonies in the plural. Why? Because God has, as a faithful witness, inscribed the word of God by the hands of the prophets, guided by the Holy Spirit, in numerous testimonies throughout the Old Testament, through many prophets throughout the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, written by not just one prophet in one generation, or not just two or three or five or ten prophets in one generation, as though they got into a huddle, into a dark and secret corner, and concocted some religion by calling themselves prophets, and then writing these words. No, this happened over hundreds of years and over millennia. The Old Testament was written down over a period of about 1,500 years, the Old Testament. So if that's how it was written, it was not written by one or five or ten prophets in one generation or in one year or in one day, nothing like that. It was written over a span of time, a long span of time, where there could not have been any collusion. There could not have been any kind of conspiracy to mislead the people for their personal advantage. That did not happen. That's why it's called a testimony. It's called a testimony because these are individual witnesses to the truth of God. So if they, these prophets are individual witnesses to the truth of God, such as Psalm 8 here or Psalm 110 from chapter 7 and all the rest of the Old Testament, then how should we treat these words? We should treat them with utmost authority, with utmost veracity, right? Because when we have eyewitnesses testifying to the same fact, to the same incident that happened, if we had 40 of them, if we had 30 of them, if we had 20 of them, all testifying to the fact that they were eyewitnesses of an incident, should we not believe them? Of course we should. That's the way courts of law work, not only in our nation, but all around the world, by the mouth of two or three witnesses. When they see something, then their testimony is to be taken with credibility. So if their testimony is to be taken with credibility, should we not do so also? When we read the Bible, should we not take it as a testimony to the truth of God? a testimony to all of the verities that God wants us to know, what he revealed, what he wrote here? Should we not know? Should we not read? Should we not study? Should it not be a part of our thinking? Should it not be a part of our values, the way we live? Of course. This is why he says, one has testified in a certain place. Testified so that we are alerted to the fact that this is credible. We should listen. Now, what is it? What is the content of this testimony? He takes this, as we said, from Psalm 8, verses 4 to 6. And Psalm 8, verses 4 to 6. What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? 
Now, if we casually read Psalm 8, if we casually read Psalm 8, then normally, based on our lack of knowledge or lack of experience with the issues of the scriptures, we might come away after reading Psalm 8 thinking that Psalm 8 is really about someone else, not about Christ. That Psalm 8 is actually about somebody else and not about Christ. Not about Messiah, because here the apostle, he is saying it is about Christ. But if we were to read Psalm 8 superficially, without some background, without some knowledge of how the scriptures are all about Christ, we would think that it's about somebody else. However, it is not about somebody else. One example of that, one example of that is a quote in Matthew, Matthew 21. Matthew 21 and verse 16, there Jesus is praised by the children, praised by the children as he entered the city and cleansed the temple. And notice what happens. When he is praised by the children and they cry out, Hosanna, 21.15, Matthew 21.15, Hosanna to the Son of David. They shout that because the children understood, they understood the identity of Christ, so they shouted out who he was. He was the son of David. They were exclaiming this and rejoicing in that fact. However, Jesus' antagonists didn't believe that. They didn't believe Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ of God, was the Christ or the Son of God, Son of Man of the Old Testament. They didn't believe that. But Jesus said, in order to prove that the children were doing the right thing, and even to shame his enemies right there in public, he quotes Psalm 8, verse 2, and applies it to himself. He says, Psalm 8, verse 2 is about him. And this incident that would happen in the ministry of Christ, verse 16, and said to him, his antagonist said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. Jesus says to them, yes, I hear what they're saying, and what they're saying is not wrong. Have you never read? Do you not know? You know that Psalm 8 is messianic. You know that. And you know that there was a prophecy that children would be praising me, that they would be praising me. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. He prepared praise for himself to vindicate the children who knew Jesus' identity and also to shame his enemies for not acknowledging his identity. He quoted Psalm 8, verse 2 as a reference to himself. So there is precedent to believe that Psalm 8, verse 2, and the whole psalm is about Christ and not about anybody else. And that's the way the apostle takes it here. Let's see in verse 6. He says, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? Observe how he says, What is man... Or the son of man. Man or the son of man. The term son of man is used also in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. And it became the most common, the favorite expression of the New Testament, and especially from the lips of Christ to identify who he is. Son of man. So when he says here, what is man or son of man, he's using in poetry, as poetry often has parallelism, this parallelism in poetry, identifying a noun, a person in two different ways, identifying an object in two different ways, in order to emphasize who we're talking about, to further describe who we're talking about. Sometimes verbs are used, similar verbs are used in two different lines in parallelism. That's what's happening here. You remember him, and you are concerned about him. There, there is the verbal parallel. We're talking about the noun, 
and the verb. Who is it we're talking about? Well, from Daniel 7, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, we see that this is about Christ. Because this term, Son of Man, in this unique sense, is a reference to Christ himself. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. He calls this one in the vision that he sees, coming with the clouds, one like a son of man. When he says like a son of man, he means one like us, but uniquely different from us. He is like us, but different from us. So this phrase, son of man, became a title, a designation, another one of the Messiah or the Christ. He has many names and this is one of them. But this became the favorite one. We see here in this vision that he comes up to the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father, and the Son of Man receives an eternal kingdom. Eternal kingdom. Because it's one where there is complete obedience and it will not pass away and it will not be destroyed. That could not be said of any human. It could only be said of Christ. Now, let's show that the Jews, the Jews, when they saw these passages, they, in fact, did interpret them messianically. They, in fact, did interpret them as references to Christ or the coming Savior. They did, in fact, do that, and therefore, here, he is justified in doing so. Our first example is Matthew. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Jesus is on trial. He is before the high priest and all of the religious authorities, and they are interrogating him. And there are accusers coming with their false accusations. So we pick it up in verse 63, 2663 of Matthew. But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. He adjures him, that, that is, puts him under oath by the living God for Jesus to tell him whether he is the Christ, and another term for that is the Son of God. Are you the Son of God? Yes. Or are you the Christ? Yes. I'm talking about the same individual who has these different names or titles. Jesus answer. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What does he say? He says, You have said it yourself. The words came out of your own mouth. The Christ, the Son of God. You know and he says, not only do you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to vindicate or I am going to assert what you know to be actually true. And it's true of me, me, the individual. So he says, I tell you, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Here he cites two passages, two messianic passages, our passage in Daniel 7, 13, and 14, and as well, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That is, the Lord God the Father spoke to the Lord His Son and said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Why and when? Between his first coming and second coming, when he ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, and he will remain there until the second coming, at the right hand of the Father. And as well, when he comes again, he will come, it says, on the clouds of heaven. That's what Daniel said in Daniel 7.13, coming with the clouds of heaven. 
whether he's coming with her on, same thing. He is there in the clouds, and he's coming in his return. So these passages by the Jews were known to be messianic. We can know that outside of the Bible from Jewish writings, but we can also know it from this passage, from the following. Verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robe, saying, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? They knew, they knew that Jesus was claiming to be the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, whatever term you want to use, because he quoted the Messianic passages of Daniel 7 and Psalm 110. They knew that those passages to be Messianic. He quoted them, and they wanted to put him to death. Not only that, but we may also say that it wasn't just the religious officials who knew these truths. Who else knew these truths? The common man did. The common Jew. He knew these truths. John chapter 9. John chapter 9, 35 to 38. John 9, 35 to 38. This is the incident of the man who was born blind, and he was a beggar. He was a blind beggar, right? And then Jesus healed him. And Jesus' enemies opposed that healing. And then this blind man, Jesus finds him, and they have this dialogue. John 9, 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out, meaning expelled him from the synagogue. And finding him, he said, Jesus said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered and said, And who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Who is he? When he says, Who is he that I may believe in him? I know that the Son of Man is coming, but I want to know who specifically is it. Is he alive? Is he here in my generation? Am I able to see him now? That's what his question is. His question is not about the truthfulness of the Son of Man or who the Son of Man would be, but specifically which person in history is this Son of Man. Is it Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus answers. Verse 37, Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. There we have it. We have this common man, blind beggar, now healed, who encounters Christ. He knows about the Son of Man. He doesn't say, well, tell me more and teach me more about the Son of Man. I have to first have a one-hour or five-hour or ten-hour or ten-year study of the Son of Man before I can know for sure the facts about who the Son of Man would be before I can believe in him. No! He already had all that background, and all he needed to know was which person specifically is the Son of Man. Jesus confirms that it is he, and then the man, the healed man, worships him. He says, Lord, I believe, and he worships him. So, in the same way, if we do diligence and do due diligence to the study of the Bible, we will see that there are many such passages of the Old Testament that are indeed messianic, that are indeed about Christ, that predict who he would be, what he would do. Our salvation and redemption are all bound up and tied to that. We should not be surprised at this, that the Old Testament is about Christ, because Jesus taught that in Luke 24, 25 to 27. And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And in fact, if we don't know this, if we don't study this, if we're not curious and interested to pursue this and understand our salvation in the person of Christ from the Old Testament and the New Testament all together, Jesus calls us, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe 
in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? That's what he said to people who were incurious about these matters. Now, having shown that this passage is about Christ, let's proceed on to see what it says about him. Verse 7. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. For a little while. In Psalm 8, if your English translation does not reflect it, it should reflect the term, the Hebrew term in Psalm 8. It should say, a little while. It is a temporal term in that context. And there are other examples in the Old Testament of how that term is a temporal term. So we should understand it for a little while. So what is the little while, as it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7? What is this little while? During the period of his humiliation, during the period of his 33 and a half years on earth, during the period of his three and a half years of ministry, during the period of his suffering, his last week of his life before he died and rose again. All of this is this little while period that he's speaking of. He would not live on the earth for a long time, for hundreds of years, and preach the gospel all around the world. He would have a limited ministry in a limited location because of God's will. That's the way God ordained it, for a little while. So God made Christ for a little while lower than the angels. In what sense was Christ made lower than the angels? He was made lower than the angels because he obtained a human body, because he was flesh and bones, because he was incarnated, just like you and I have a body of flesh and bones. He also had the same. He had a human body and a human spirit. And in his divine nature, he was spirit, because God is spirit, John 4, 24. So, He was made lower than the angels for a little while because angels are above us in the sense of power and glory, right? Angels are above us in that they don't experience torture and pain and death. They are above us in that sense. But Jesus was made lower, meaning he was made just like you and I are made. Hebrews chapter 2 will continue to explain this truth that he was, in fact, made like us, especially chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. For example, 2.14 says, Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. He took upon human flesh, and that's the sense in which he was made lower than the angels. Another perplexing part about this passage that has puzzled many interpreters is here in Hebrews 2.7, he says, lower than the angels. If you read your English Bibles, typically the English Bibles, New American Standard Bible, for example, will translate in in, uh, Psalm 8, it will translate it a little lower than God a little lower than God, rather than saying a little lower than the angels. The reason being is the term Elohim, the Hebrew term Elohim used in Psalm 8, is usually, in 99% of its occurrences, it is used of God himself. I should say either of God himself or of false gods. Just like, like in English, the term God is used of the true God, and it's also used of false gods but usually in the plural, unless we're talking about a specific single false god, we'll say it in the singular. In the same way, the Hebrew term Elohim is used of the true God, but also false gods, 99% of the time. But then there are a handful of times when that phrase is used of humans, like judges, like judges, those who are sitting on benches of law, those judges... They are called gods, for example, in Psalm 82. Psalm 82, verse 6. I said you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men, because they were unjust. They were wicked. They were called gods. The judges were called gods 
in the sense that they, they delivered and they interpreted, they enacted, they insisted, they were supposed to insist that the people understood the law of God and practice it. Whenever there was a criminal, they needed to explain the law of God to the criminal and then God's punishment to the criminal. God's punishment. Because they were representatives of God, on occasion, the Old Testament will use that word Elohim in reference to humans. Not because they are truly gods, but because they carry the word of God. They deliver the word of God. They announce the word of God. So in the same way, rarely the Old Testament will use this word Elohim in reference to angels. And that's the sense in which Psalm 8 should be translated. A little while lower than the angels. In that sense, he was made for a little while lower than the angels. And thereby, we see here, our passage translates it angels. And by the way, ancient translations of Greek and Aramaic, Greek and Aramaic, even before the time of the New Testament, and even outside of the world of the New Testament, they too render Psalm 8 as a little while lower than the angels. So it's not a unique translation, it is a right translation. So it's not unique in the sense that the apostle has misunderstood or misinterpreted the Old Testament. I mention this again because there are skeptics in the Bible who misinterpret this passage and impugn the apostle for misinterpreting and misquoting the Old Testament, when in fact nothing like that is happening. So he says, he was made a little while lower than the angels. But what happened after that? You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands and have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, after he suffered, now he is crowned with glory and honor. He is appointed over the whole of creation and everything is put in subjection to him. Well, what does he mean by that? He means, just as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28. Remember in the Great Commission what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 28, 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. When did that start? Upon the resurrection and ascension. It started then. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Another example, 1 Peter 3, 22. 1 Peter 3, 22. Partly verse 21, the last part of verse 21, he says, Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Subjected to him, our same term. Subjected to him, just as it says in Hebrews chapter 2. All things were made subjected to him. All things have not been made subject to angels, or to an archangel, nor to any human, but only to Christ. Why? Because God predicted, God said, he was going to have his son come into the world and then exalt him after he died on the cross. He was humiliated and then exalted. Exalted by resurrection and ascension, and now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. That's what he means here in Psalm 8, quoted in Hebrews 2. However, I mentioned earlier that it is not a full and universal subjection in the practical sense, in the real sense, because we still have evil. The devil still prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We still undergo afflictions. We undergo pain and death. So, in a sense, everything is subjected to him, but in another sense, it's not completely and in totality subjected to him. That's why he says in verse 8, For in subjecting all things to him, that is to Christ, he left nothing that is not subject to him. To him. 
He left nothing that is not subject to him. Everything is subjected to Christ in that it passes through the will of Christ before anything can happen in this life between the first coming and the day of judgment. Everything happens by the will of Christ. However, he qualifies it, just as I've been qualifying it, in verse 8. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Now, he, what he means is in the full sense. In the full sense, that will happen. In the full sense, one day that will happen. We know of the famous passage that's often quoted in Philippians chapter 2, that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We pick it up in verse 9, Philippians 2, 9. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Je Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A day will come when all things in this full sense will be subjected to Christ, will be subjected to Him. A similar passage is found in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, also after describing in part the death of Christ, he says, in verse 25, 1 Corinthians 15, 25, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And... When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. We see here, too, the apostle says, he is reigning, all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth, but everything has not in the full sense been made subject to Christ, because there's still death, there's still the enemy, the last enemy, enemy, that is death, that must be abolished. Now, but in the meantime, what should we understand? What did Jesus accomplish? Verse 9, Hebrews 2, 9. But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. We do see him, we just explained that. For a little while, Jesus was made lower than the angels, for a little while. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Notice that. Because of the suffering of death, because he died on the cross, now he is crowned with glory and honor, because he is at the right hand of the Father. No angels are there, no, no men are there, only the Son of God is there, the Son of Man. Only He is there, and He's crowned with glory and honor. No one else sits there. No one else is reigning and ruling from the right hand of God. And why is this right hand of God so important? Why is it so important that He is crowned with glory and honor and He is seated there? Well, the Apostle will explain further later, because he says, we do not have, chapter 4, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Let us, therefore, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because he's there, he's got power to help us. He's got grace to help us. He has overcome, and he will help us overcome. That's why it's important to understand he suffered for us and now raised for us. We also must note that it says because of the suffering of death. Why does he say because of the suffering of death? Because suffering sometimes does not include death. That's an obvious statement. 
But why is it ne needed for him to assert something and clarify this? Because in his day, in his day, there were Jews who did not want to believe in the death of Messiah. They did not want to believe that the Messiah or the Christ would come in order to die. They did not want to believe that because they only had fixed in their minds a prosperous kingdom. They only had material prosperity in their eyes. They did not have any kind of spiritual understanding of the gospel. They did not have any spiritual understanding of the role of the Messiah. The spiritual part included the fact that he had to come and die for our sins. Now, that problem has not only been in the mind of the Jewish person, the Hebrew person, but it's also in mind of Gentilic people like you and I. It's also in our minds because we are always fixated on the material. We're always fixated on the physical. We're always fixated on the visible, what we can see and touch and feel and smell. That's what we're fixated on. But we have to understand, why did he come to die? He came to die to redeem us from our sins, that we might overcome our sins, beginning from our conversion, throughout our consecration, and ultimately the consummation when we see Christ face to face. For this whole period, he came to die for our sins. Furthermore, throughout history, those within Christendom and outside of Christendom, within Christendom there are many people who claim to be Christians but aren't Christians. In old times it was the Gnostics, the Gnostics or the Docetics, these people said Jesus did not have a body of flesh and he did not die. It just appeared that he had a body and it just appeared that he died. It seemed like he died, but he didn't really die. And today, you might have heard of the Christian scientists. The Christian scientists who are neither Christians nor scientists, but they call themselves Christian scientists and they say they are Christians. They say they believe in the Bible. They too say Jesus came as a ghost or as a phantom. He was not real and tangible. He did not have a physical body and he did not die on the cross. It did not actually happen. They say because the only thing that is of any importance is the invisible world. There is no visible world, in fact. They say it does not exist. Yet somehow they exist. It, it's a contradiction. It's a literal contradiction. But also, outside of Christianity, why is it important to understand the fact that Jesus died physically in history, in time and space, as predicted by the prophets and as announced by the apostles? Because of Islam. Islam has over one billion adherents. One billion, over one billion adherents worldwide. And universally... They believe that Jesus did not die on the cross. He did not die in history. It did not happen. It only appeared to be the case. He never did. They say he, he did not die literally on the cross. That means that if he did not die on the cross, he did not rise from the dead. If he did not die on the cross for our sins, he did not rise from the dead for our justification, You've stripped away the whole gospel right there. So Muslims, though they might claim we worship the same God and they believe in Jesus, no, it's an absolute lie. They do not worship the same God as we worship. They do not believe in the same Jesus we believe in because their Jesus did not die on the cross and their Jesus did not rise from the dead. Our Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Their Jesus did not die on the cross and they are working for their own salvation and hoping that their good deeds outweigh their evil deeds on the day of judgment. No, it's a completely different and false religion. It is not in concord with the Bible. The Bible says, because of the suffering of death, that was a necessity. A necessity because it was in the will of God before the foundation of the world. A necessity because it was in the prophets of God who spoke the word of God in the written word of God of the Old Testament. It was a necessity because that's the only means for our redemption, that he might pay the penalty for our sins. And how did he do it? It says at the end of verse 9, 
by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. By the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. When he came into the world, it was because of the goodness of God or the love of God. Here he says, by the grace of God. He came into the world in order for his grace to be manifested to us, to have a tangible, physical display of his grace. He did not come as an accident. He did not come for those any other reason that people invent. He came because of grace. He came to manifest his grace to us. Grace because we cannot earn our salvation. Grace because it takes God gifting us salvation, gifting us his son, and gifting us the means to believe in his son, giving us the gift of repentance, giving us the gift of faith so that we might believe in his son. It happened by the grace of God. Jesus was not acting independent of the grace of God, even though he suffered, which is also a model for us. By God's grace, he suffered. And if we belong to him, as it says in Romans 8, 17, we will be glorified with him, it says, if we suffer with him. So when we suffer, we must depend upon and call upon the grace of God. And even when we are crowned and when we are glorified with Christ, it's all because of the grace of God. It is the grace of God that brings suffering into our world, and it is the grace of God that brings glorification into our world, just as it did with our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. We see also in verse 9, he tasted death for everyone. It's, when it says he tasted death, this is a term, a Hebraism, a Hebrew idiom, to say he experienced death. To say he tasted death means he experienced death. We could cross-reference Matthew 16, 28. There are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom come with power. So he was talking about some of his contemporaries who would not experience death before they saw the kingdom of God come with power. There are other examples like that. However, I would also say that this expression is not only talking about the lacking the experience of death, not tasting death for some and others tasting death, not only the experience of death, but also the temporary existence of the death. To taste is not the same as to imbibe. The, to taste is not the same as to consume a full meal, right? When we just taste something, it's not as though we ate the full meal. So, in the case of Christ, this is an allusion to the fact that he only experienced his death for three days. Only three days. As predicted in the Old Testament. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. No decay would set in into the body of Christ, according to Psalm 16, verses 9 to 11. No decay, which means that the body of Jesus could not decay. It could not stay in the grave a long time. It had to be raised on the third day so that decay would not begin with the body of Christ. And there are other examples of the Old Testament predicting the fact that Jesus would die and rise on the third day. And finally, he says he tasted death for everyone. For everyone. Now, does everyone here mean everyone without exception or everyone without distinction? Everyone without exception, meaning every individual who has ever lived, every individual who has had an existence throughout all time, or does it mean everyone without distinction? And without distinction means for Jew and Greek, for male and female, for free man and slave man, for whoever, right? Does it, for kings and commoners, whoever they may be, whatever language they speak, whatever nation in, in which they dwell, it doesn't matter. From this passage and from this context, we ought to believe that when he says for everyone, he means everyone without distinction. 
He does not mean everyone um, uh, without exception because of the following. We will see this next time where he says, for example, in verse 10, he brings many sons to glory. He brings many. God brings them, and he is the author of their salvation. Verse 10 says, their salvation. Verse 11, those who are sanctified are all from one Father. He's qualifying what he means by everyone. Verse 11 also says, he calls them, not ashamed to call them brethren. The everyone he dies for, he calls them brethren. Verse 12, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. He calls them also congregation, verse 12. In verse 13, very significant. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Jesus dies for these children that God gave to him. That means we have predestination, election, that God gave a certain number of children to his son, Christ, to die for them. This is all within the context. He specifies who he means for everyone, everyone without distinction, not without exception, but in this group that God has chosen, salvation is for them. Let's believe and let's adhere to Christ. Let's believe in his identity and his ministry wholeheartedly, without any wavering. Adhere to him, believe in him, subscribe to him, be fixed in him, your hope in him, until the very end, because he died for our sins. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.